I'm Mark Haywood and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. I really wanted it to be something about how we would become our worst enemies, how we would emulate what was done to us. What do you know about Trinidad? Perhaps the classic portrait of a Caribbean island instantly comes to mind. Those hardened stereotypes of calypso music playing, the bright sun shining down on the beaches. But that's not knowing Trinidad. To know a place is to understand its whole history, even the surprising and perhaps unsavoury parts. Throughout a large period of the late 19th century, during the height of colonialism, Trinidadians experienced subhuman living conditions consigned to gruesome, barrack-type quarters. These small rooms housed entire families who experienced a severe lack of privacy and poor ventilation. It was rough. Author of the new novel Hungry Ghosts says the barrack life is one that not many people know about, even in Trinidad. He says it's not part of popular historical imagery. There are no calypsos or songs written about it, and most of the details seem to be relegated to memories. But he's changing all that. The book's author is Kevin Jared Hussain, and I'm delighted to say that he's my guest today. Chapter 1. The Dogs Today, Who Tomorrow? Hungry Ghosts is a novel about violence, religion, family and class rooted in nature and the wild pastoral landscape of colonial central Trinidad. On a hill overlooking Bell Village sits the Changor Farm, where Dalton and Marley Changor live in luxury, unrecognisable to those who reside in the farm's shadow. Down below is the barrack, a ramshackle building of wood and tin. Among the families that live there are the Saroops, Hans and Schweter, and their son, Krishna, who live hard lives of back-breaking work, grinding poverty and devotion to faith. When Dalton Changor goes missing and Marley's safety is compromised, farmhand Hans is lured by the promise of a handsome stipend to move to the farm as watchman. Although the stories are fictional, the setting is very real. I wondered if Kevin was surprised by what he learnt about Trinidad during his research for the book. It is as foreign to some people here as it would be to someone not not living here. Not so much, let's say, the the physical setting is something that is is held in a time capsule in several places in Trinidad. So you you could envision it as, as as a local, you know, as a Trinidadian. But there's a kind of feral nature to it that I wanted to to capture for, you know, both both people living here and abroad and almost a a sort of foreign, unknowable nature. And that may explain, like, why I use so many of the local words (laughs) to describe some of the flora and fauna in there as if it's something, you know, kind of otherworldly. But I did, I did learn a lot while while I was researching, not so much about how the landscape was laid out, because you would have seen photographs and so on like in in history books, but it was more about the day-to-day lives of, you know, endurance and sort of overcoming things like weather and you know, daily backbreaking hardships and things like that. Those are things that were not usually described. And that's kind of what I wanted to capture in the book. Yeah, for 
for the people who live in the barracks, life is hard all of the time. Everything is difficult, as you say, even even just surviving a storm is fraught with danger and disruption. And that feral nature pervades the entire novel. There is almost a stench, isn't there, of wildness about the country that really shines through. It's 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 everywhere. It's all consuming. You, you, you know, it's a novel that never lets you forget where you are. That's the, that's what I took from it. It is uh, like while, while I was writing it throughout my mind, I was thinking, well, for each character here, this this is a place that does not feel like home. Like even though they, they live there, whether it was the barrack or whether it was the mansion that Mali lives in, it is a place where home, the concept of home seems so temporary or corporeal. It seems like something that could so fleeting. And I guess that's, that's also a, a kind of metaphor for Trinidad colonialism, but I'm not, not, not really going into that. There's a short story, just to go on a slight aside here, there's a short story by Jack London called All Gold Canyon. And the, the story is basically a very lush American Valley kind of setting during the gold, gold rush. There's the, the main story is that there's this guy panning for gold in, in a river and a bandit, you know, he, he gets all this gold and a bandit shows up all of a sudden and tries to steal it from him. And there's this huge scuffle going on in the valley. But the way in which um it is written is written as if it is just integrated within the natural landscape. Like this is this is a part of what you would expect of nature, like two animals fighting over territory or something like that. And like I had that in mind while I was writing it because so much of when I was interviewing elders and gathering research seemed like, oh, well, this is just part of natural territory and nature and I guess what I like to call the ecology of the area. So that's why like you would get so many as as just, like this landscape sort of being sovereign and kind of uncaring to the characters around. You talked about animals, and in my notes to you, the, I had one reference that came screaming through, which is the novel Disgrace, and yeah. particularly in the way that you have the dogs as characters. I've read that you know many people will probably be appalled by the cruelty towards the dogs, but it, it's much more than that. It, it's it's a real part of this story and the way that the dogs were part of the novel Disgrace. I, I wonder whether that was a, a reference point for you, because I thought the dogs and the feral nature of the dogs, I thought that was brilliantly woven into the story. It's so much more than being a creature. It's part of this ecology, as you've called it, isn't it? It is. As a person who owned, who has owned dogs their entire life, it is quite appalling when you, when you see violence against animals, namely domestic animals as well. It does take from what um, this Greece <laughs> tried to do. You're probably one of the first pe people to actually make <laughs> that link. Because um, from some feedback, uh, people have been turned off because by by the, the death of the dogs, they're a sign of a, of a more ill woman, but they're also a sign of um, the violence against animals is sort of like a a sign of desensitization to violence, not just to, to animals, but for those that we would consider less fortunate or, or, or lesser. And the dogs 
when the the Barak people are insulted, they usually use animal terms to describe them, like cockroaches, rats, vermin, things like that. And there's a part of the book that I wrote to sort of get get this across, where early in the book, where the, the village boys, the rival gang, tries to drown one of the Barak dogs. And some of the Barak residents, they're shocked, but it's, some of them are kind of nonchalant about this dog has almost drowned, has been, you know, nearly been killed. And one of the characters, Rookman, says, the dogs today, well, who tomorrow? It's kind of like a, a cycle, an escalating cycle of violence. There's a very famous Netflix documentary about a serial killer who starts off by by murdering cats. And, it you know, there's proven yeah. scientific evidence that you, you're right. It's, it's the animals today. But what happens tomorrow? You know, that that cruelty, if you like, and that violence is really important to the story because there is this sense that trinidad and everything on the island just could explode at any moment right that there is a real real sense of danger about all of this and that that this is a a real moment in time at which the island could go in any direction it is because the the time it is set the 1940s is, is like a quite precarious time we would have just had some some labor riots and the general mood of the island was was something that, that was, I said, very dark and, and almost like a powder keg. Part of what would have added to that, added to you know, the colonial machinery sort of slowing down, is that at a point we realized that we have to, to trust each other and we don't really trust each other. So there, there was a like very early on when I was writing the book, um, British overseers were characters in there, but I, I removed them altogether, like any um, colonial characters, because I really wanted it to be something about how we would become our worst enemies, how we would set up a sort of, um, we would emulate what was done to us. As I said, it's a kind of desensitization to the violence to the point where we, if, if this is inflicted upon you every day, maybe at a point you would not even see it as as violence. So I wanted to wanted that to, to come across that that this is not really a story denigrating um like a certain country or certain people from the country, but it, it would be like the after effects, yeah, of how a country could probably tear itself apart. If they were finally just left each other, they had no overseers, nobody looking over them, and we suddenly had to, to kind of take care of ourselves and find out that we couldn't. You set up the precinct very early on. We have Dalton and Marley who live in the mansion, and everyone else lives in the shadow of the mansion in, in the barracks. And, and you, this juxtaposition of wealth and splendor and the feral nature of daily life is very very well drawn so we have dalton has gone missing we don't know at the moment what has happened and hans is asked to help out and what i found really interesting was the impact that exposure to the mansion has on hans he finds that something that's very very difficult to walk away from once you've been exposed to that life you can't really go back to the barracks can you so he's very very conflicted as he gets deeper into this potential life of luxury and splendor that, that's quite an astute observation because when i what, what i think is the turning point if there's a singular turning point for hands or something that 
basically the straw that broke his back or that very slowly broke his back is that he got to sleep on a bed, like a, right. an actual bed with, with, with a blanket. And it, it was not so much, you know, his, his you know, the, the, the little pursuit with Mali and so on. It was more that he got to sleep on a bed and, and there's a part where he kind of collapses into a bunch of clothes in the closet and it's like all this softness and uh, not not really just luxury, but there's a there's a comfort that he never would have experienced before. And I imagine him in, in his mind now, like this is something that I could have, but I would have to give up possibly my entire family to have it. And there's a there's a portion of the book where we don't really hear from him. We don't really inhabit his mind. We kind of left to kind of figure out what he's thinking. Like, why is he doing the things he's doing? We've been following him, and now he's kind of not obeying, you know, what his 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 rules. So when he gets to spend the night in the mansion, and he's been sleeping on a a very um, hard coconut fiber mattress his entire life with a leaky roof and there's rats and cockroaches and the food and all of a sudden now the, just the basic fact that he gets to sleep on a bed with a cover and a, you know with a blanket and a mattress that is something very very powerful to him that shifts his entire mindset or begins to shift it anyway chapter two the hungry ghosts With this taste of luxury, Hans becomes a mortal version of a hungry ghost. In Buddhist mythology, a preta, or hungry ghost, is a supernatural being constantly plagued by intense hunger and thirst. These beings are said to have been reborn in their current form due to their past greed, stinginess, or other negative behaviour, which has caused them to be cursed with insatiable cravings. And this very much feels like what's happened to Hans, who becomes consumed by this mortal desire for a life he's not had before. If I were to answer, well, who are the hungry ghosts? <laughs> it's a story. I mean, it is a, a metaphor for it, but Hans and Mali are quite by the end of the book, literal hungry ghosts, because both of them are kind of wandering. Like she's on a horse and she's in the darkness and there's a, there's a kind of eerie, ghastly feeling to each of their story. And yeah, the, the, the concept of the hungry ghost is that, you know, if you commit certain sins, um, upon death, you would have to spend some time in a realm where your mouth is extremely small, you know, appetites and belly is extremely big, necks are very, very narrow. So there's no, yeah, there's no really, there's no real way to save the appetite that you have. So yeah, it is almost as if hands and by extension, Mali, a time ago, they, they do get a taste of what they believe is the ideal life, like what people should be living. And there's really no true answer to how life should be lived or anything like that. But they had, you could tell that they had this this idea of escape and, and I said not luxury, but comfort in, in their minds from long ago. And when they finally do get it, it is something that seems unattainable because they, they are the number of things that you have to put aside or sacrifice or or discard in order to live that kind of life. It seems impossible to them. I did wonder when I was reading it whether, had I been sent a copy of this book and instead of your name, it had had Cormac McCarthy's name on it, I would have believed that that was an entirely authentic, you know, it was as if 
somebody had said to Cormac McCarthy, why don't you write a dystopian wilderness set in the Caribbean, right? This is what he would have come up with. I, I found myself gasping at times at your at your use of of local words. And, and I, I loved the way you did that in an unapologetic way. You know, we're going to bring everything about Trinidad to this. But at times I felt that your your use of language, it really, really resonated with me that this could be a lost Cormac McCarthy novel. And I, and I wondered whether he has been an influence in, in your work, um, whether you've you know thought about his work, because it's astonishing how you've managed to, to find a way to make this book feel both authentically Caribbean, but also it's a Caribbean I don't know anything about. I really felt like I was in some dystopian nightmare at times. I hope I haven't borrowed too much from Cormac McCarthy. <laughs> so I'm, I'm a big fan of his. The first book I, I'd read from him was The Road, which was the last novel he wrote up until, you know, The Passenger and Stella Maris. But, and up until then, I have almost his entire catalogue. So uh, like Blood Meridian, Child of God. And there's a, there's a way in which he writes about, not just like landscape, but there's a way in which he captures like the darkness of the American psyche within his characters that I wanted to capture within the Trinidadian psyche. And it it maybe was a bit of hubris at the time that when I set out to write this, I didn't really expect it to, to go this far, honestly. I really just wanted to write something that would kind of capture that, that kind of darkness of that past. I wanted to like write the old Trinidadian novel, like something that would that would just capture all these words, our, our language, our creole, our landscape and our sounds like things you would hear and ambitions and downfalls and everything like that they wanted I, I wanted it to be this big thing and i wanted to as i said i wanted to be unapologetic with it the words of the the plants the animals the the old religious rituals that was there that that would be almost indecipherable to to, to a foreign reader I wanted it to be part of, to become part of recognize, their recognizable vocabulary. I assume that when you learn, when you learn about a country, you'd usually learn about it through its literature. Whether that literature is adapted into film or whether it's into song or something like that. But I was like, well, these words, like if you see them once again, you would know that they are distinctly Caribbean or Trinidadian. Same way if you read something like from Ireland and you would know like a banshee or something. They would be distinctly Irish. So when it comes to like the foods, the the slang that we have, the different words that we would have gotten for plants and birds, I wanted all of that in there because I wanted to integrate it with the kind of poetic, you know, language, the English language that that you might find in in like Hardy or, or, or something. And, and and that's what that's why I wanted to to show. But with Cormac McCarthy, he plays with not just language but with with the structure of his of his text where like the road is written so sparsely at times as meant to mimic the wasteland kind of feeling and i wanted this book to feel as i said like like a nightmare sometimes and it's, it's funny that you said that because usually when i write something i keep a phrase in mind that each sentence or paragraph should encompass 
this particular freeze and my freeze was beautiful nightmare. Chapter three, a love letter. As nightmarish as it is, and as feral as it is, and it really is, this book is also a love letter to this part of Trinidad's history. I found myself thinking I would know what Trinidad would be like, and yet I was completely wrong. As I mentioned earlier, very few people know about this chapter in the country's history, so I asked Kevin if writing the novel has changed his relationship with Trinidad. It hasn't changed my relationship with it. It has maybe come to understand it better. And I know that when I was discussing it with um, other writers or just friends, a lot of it were things that they didn't know. And even when I was discussing some of it with my parents, some of the things were, were just vagaries to them, even though they would have been born slightly after that time. And it is a love letter to Trinidad. Some people, I mean, you, you may think it is, it is really violent and despondent at times, but it also shows, I guess, the timeline of things because we have come quite a, a wave, a ways from there. It is also a love letter to East Indian culture in Trinidad, I guess, because you may hear about Trinidad, but you might not hear a lot about the East Indian culture here, despite we make up half the population. And there's there is literature about it, like Nightfall would have written about it, and other authors would have written about it. But it's not something that would have been quite prevalent throughout the, the cultural tapestry of Trinidad, or at least what, what one would view it from abroad. So I wanted that uh, all of that to kind of come together here. Yeah, because as writers, it's often too easy to reach for a stereotype that's familiar. And all of the preconceived notions of Trinidad that, that I have are probably quite lazy stereotypes, you know, because I, I I haven't been. I've read very little about its history, but I have a sense as to what it's like. And actually reading this, I was like, well, I don't I don't know. And this is the beauty of uh, of reading. And I think if you're going to write a love letter and if you're going to to show I'm going to show Trinidad in all of its beautiful nightmarish beauty then i have to show everything i have to you know i have to shine a spotlight on absolutely everything because otherwise we're painting an unrealistic fairy tale disney version of of trinidad and actually we don't want to see that what we want to see are the barracks we want to see the feral nature we want to see the violence we want to see all of the words and phrases that you put in because without those we don't get to the heart of trinidad do we no, no, you, you you have to take it all in because if you if you accept let's say the postcard version of Trinidad and you see coconut trees and steel steel drums and calypso music and and rum and you know clubs, those things do exist. Like they they are they are part of the island. And that's like that's not a, a fantasy version of it or anything, but it is one feast. You know, it's one aspect of it because um, we do. And I do take partake in all those things. It's not just for like tourists, but there's a, I think to, to add context, it's good to also see where those things might have come from because all, all those things, even like limbo dancing, has origins like from these darker places in, in Trinidad. And I think having the big picture of it not only helps with knowledge, but kind of appreciation 
and it helps build upon the big Caribbean story. And so not just of, of, of Trinidad, but the other islands, which each has their own um, stories as, as well. But it helps build this bigger picture. And that's the thing about the Caribbean, because the Caribbean is so often exoticized and, and fetishized that the stories tend to be lost a little bit. And as a result, we may, like, like us writers from the Caribbean, may compensate by making our stories very, very dark. <laughs> and hopefully this one is not too dark, but it is really just, as I said, to paint the big picture of it and, and let it be known, you know, to the wider world, because that's how I said, I believe is actually true stories and literature in which you would know a country or a region. What has the reaction been from readers locally, Kevin, to the book? So the book is already out here, but I also, ha- I also, you know, we had advanced readers as well. So very, very positive responses. And I've had, uh, like, I guess what, what would be like one of our literary scholars really praising the book and a historian as, as well. I was really worried about the his- historical part of it because, I mean, obviously I haven't lived through that era and all of it would have been built from photographs and articles and interviews. So I was pretty sure that I would get some things wrong in there. Like I'd have to use artistic license. Uh, my goal was never really for 100% historical accuracy, but I really wanted to capture the mood of the country at the time. So they they really they did the interview and they did a review and it was really, really good. So I was pleasantly surprised. But so far, yeah, really, really good reception. The books have been selling really well. Well, that's good to hear because I would hate for this, you know, you, you said this, you know, we often fantasize and fetishize the nature of the Caribbean that we know. And this is a very different portrayal of Trinidad in particular, but it's a very, very important one. And it's one that we should be proud of because this is what it was actually like at the time. And and by, okay, yes, of course, you're going to take artistic license. That's your role as a, as a writer. But what you're doing is you're shining a light on something that led to Trinidad being what it is today. And as uncomfortable as that may make people feel, there is there is a haunting beauty to the feral landscape and to the violence and to everything that happens and the spiritualism and, and folklore and myth and legend and all of that. It's so rich that I think it's a story that, you know, demands that you tell it this way. I can't, I, I've, I've, I've tried to think of how else you might tell the story of Dalton's disappearance and Marley and Hans and everybody else. And actually I can't think of a better one than this. Yes. I could have a go at writing this story and I could make it look beautiful and I could take all of the feral stuff out of it, but it wouldn't be the story that it is. And I think once you understand that that is the book, that's the story. Right. Forget what happens to Dalton and Marley and all of that. You know, these are characters who are walking through this scenery and this ecology, as you've wonderfully called it. But you have to put all of that in. Otherwise, the story, it doesn't make sense, does it? No, it doesn't make sense. And it, it, it is dependent on the the land itself. Not to sound cliche, is a character in itself. Yeah. A very big, uncaring character. And it is almost like a, a, a god or deity of its own or spirit looking upon these these characters. Sometimes I, I when I was writing it, I was envisioning that the land itself is sort of telling the story. And these people are like uh, 
humanities, kind of like insects, upon this place. And they are fighting over territory and they, they are conflicting over resources and, and everything like that. But it's told from a very grand scope, that very high above point of view. That's not just removed, but it's also not just like from these, like removed like from the skies and so, but it's also like down in the ground and looking up at these these characters. I imagine like the land is kind of like part of the narration as well. Wherever you're listening to this, Hungry Ghosts is out now. It is an absolute triumph. Kevin Jared Hussain, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you for having me, Mark. Conclusion, a massive thank you then to Kevin Jared Hussain for today's episode. And to recap, what have we learnt? Don't be afraid to show controversial things like the killing of dogs in Hungry Ghosts. Where violence is necessary, bring depth to it. Use violence not for the sake of violence, but as a way of communicating a more fundamental message. Don't rely simply on your characters and their stories to communicate emotion. Let the descriptions of the landscape lend weight to the imagery you're trying to convey. And finally, people need to understand the whole history of a country or region, even the unsavoury parts. Don't rush to tell the fairy tale version of a place. Find beauty in the darkest places. Tell the untold stories. Get behind the spine. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. You can get in touch directly at info at behindthespine.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. Check out the show notes for additional information and a full transcript of this episode. Also, you can sign up to the email newsletter for updates about our exclusive live and in-person residency at the Groucho Club in London. Titled Inside Stories, these events are not recorded and not repeated, and they'll put you, the audience, both behind the spine and in the room. If you'd like to go on the guest list, please drop us a line. Goodbye for now, stay safe, and keep writing. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. 